Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop. Watch, chop, retrofit. By the time this comes out, we'll know the outcome of tonight's state championship football game featuring the South Florence Bruins for the second year in a row. They won last year. Let's see if they can pull the two-peat. Is it two-peat or just a repeat? I think you'd repeat would be the, the correct term. But this is not a high school football podcast. No, it's a movie podcast yes. called Cinema Chop Shop, uh-huh. and you're here with Sean and my special guest, uh-huh. Travisito. They did let me ride that short bus and then later drive it. How'd that's that goes for you. That's how special I am. <laughs> uh, we were supposed to have been joined by Todd, but there's like a, a huge wave of like colds mm-hmm. going around. You, you I, had it. I had the funk earlier uh, this week, and gladly I am back from the great beyond. Yeah, Todd said that he was feeling better, but he didn't want to risk it, and plus uh, Vivian was sick too. So. Well, I just went straight to the doctor and got medication. Like I'm on so much steroids and antibiotics right now. I'm sorry I'm just a little bit extra tonight. <laughs> You're never extra. You look kind of bulky. So I, 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 is yeah, it I know. I've been working out. I mean, figure take advantage of it, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. They're corticosteroids, not anabolic. You're getting mad gains, bro. Yeah. All right, this week we're going to be talking about blackmail movies. And there's so many of them, too. Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, New Jack City, Hustle and Flow. I don't think you're on the right track. What do you mean? You said blackmail movies. Not movies featuring black males, but the act of blackmail. But I did so much research. Well, I'm sorry, Travis, but we're going to have to... Juice, (laughs) Poetic Justice, Barbershop, Friday... Oh my. But blackmail in the more um criminal sense, yes. right? Yes. Um extortion yes. is very similar. So there's a we this is a topic we've never even uh broached before. Yeah, we we've mentioned it on the show. It's a great plot device. Mm-hmm. Uh blackmail is such a uh disarming thing i mean you've obviously you've done something wrong some sort of indiscretion or something mm-hmm. that you don't want brought to light and someone has that, somebody knows about it someone has that leverage mm-hmm. that proof that power over you and they're exerting that leverage to get some some sort of gain typically mm-hmm. money usually money but sometimes it's just like a black envelope with an invitation to a pool party <laughs> uh blackmail movies uh as you mentioned, that they've been around. Uh, I think uh, Alfred Hitchcock directed a movie called Blackmail in like nineteen twenty nine. Yeah, so so it's pretty much um, contiguous with cinema itself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're gonna be uh, uh, we're pretty much approaching the one hundredth anniversary of that movie. You know, given a couple of years. So yeah, blackmail's been around for a long time, and people have been doing things that they don't want brought to light for quite a while. Probably as long as. People have been around the the uh, equation of a wrongdoing and somebody knowing about it and then trying to gain from that probably like since biblical times. Yeah, I would say so. Uh, social mores, uh, things that just indiscretions. It can it could might not even be something that's really serious. It's just something that's frowned upon by society. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this this whole subject is rich with lots of cool films. Uh, that we are going to talk about tonight. That's an interesting kind of paradigm that you mentioned because the original sin might not actually be a crime, 
but blackmail itself is a crime. Is a crime, yeah. right? We're gonna kick things off with some beers that are kind of on theme. All right. Uh, I I got this one today. It's uh, from Edmonds Oast, our friends in nice. uh, Mount Pleasant. It's called Leather Jacket. It's an American porter. Hell yeah! So we're going with dark slash black beers, and it's. I've still got small, one of those slightly cooled. Or my lovely wife Michelle still has one of those Hatch Chili beers in the fridge. Those are really good. Yeah. I was hoping she would share with us the last time I well, saw. Well, we were supposed to, but then like we just kind of wrapped up. Um, it, I forgot about it myself, but I remembered later. You're talking about <laughs> uh, the, the night we got together. And, with the tamales. And the tamales. Yes. Oh, those were so good. I'm wearing my shirt to represent. New Mexico. Yeah, I've got a shirt that I just got in the in the mail order. Um, the blackmail order. No. Um <laughs> And it's featuring the Zia symbol in the color scheme of the old New Mexico license plates. Dude, I love those license Land plates. Land of growing enchantment. Up. I, I, growing up, I used to just, yeah. anytime you would see a car from New Mexico, it was so easy to spot because it's just that recognizable yellow license plate. License plates now are so generic. Oh, they're so lame. But anyway, enough about license this plates. This isn't a license plate podcast. <laughs> Do you think there is a license plate podcast? I don't know. I bet there is. There's a rule number 34. There's a podcast about anything you can think of. <laughs> uh, let's talk about some, some of the films we're not going to discuss tonight okay. that people would know that feature blackmail. The one that comes to mind for me, that's probably the best known, maybe not the best known, but prop very popular is clue. Clue is great. And every character in that film uh, of, of the principal characters, mm-hmm. that is they're all being blackmailed. And that is the whole uh, plot point of them being in the mansion, trying to find out who the... Very similar to the structure of one of the films I will discuss later tonight. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, I know I know. Todd was going to discuss uh, L.A. Confidential, I mm-hmm. think, as well. That's a good one. Yeah. I think he was going to bring up Clue. And there was one other one that I'm not thinking about right now. Let me rephrase. L.A. Confidential is a well-regarded film. I didn't particularly care for it. I thought it was a bit slow. I seem to remember thinking that myself when I saw it. There was so but much hype it, around it. But it was also then, like, our cinematic tastes are so much more refined now. <laughs> yeah, totally. As we're sipping on our PBRs and our porters. Oh, I didn't get any porter. Well, pour yourself some. Porter yourself some. I'm here all night. That's okay. Um, I would prefer to have the burial beer uh, porter. Their uh, their coffee porter is better. Is it the right temperature? Um, it's a little on the warm side. It it is not ice cold. Which a darker beer probably should yeah. be enjoyed a little bit more room temperature. And this is just below room temperature. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. It's pleased. smooth though. Yeah, really smooth. I, I question the carbonation. I think they could amp it up just a tad more. I got a little head. I did too. I'm not talking about my cranium. (laughs) So let's talk about some movies. All right. So we're going to do like a lateral Robin. Yeah, it's just going to be back and forth. It's (laughs) supposed to be round Robin, but without our two of our Two of our guests dropped. Well, Joey, yeah, Joey backed out pretty early on, but unfortunately Todd had to bail. Because he's got the funk. Got the funk. We want the funk. All right, Travis, let's hit hit it with your first one. What do you got? All right, so I'm going to... Oh, shit, these are the wrong notes. I was like, <laughs> I've got The Exorcist from 1973. <laughs> um, okay. The, the cleaning lady hasn't been by the shop lately, so there are some old notes lying around. I'm going to do mine in chronological order uh, by it. year of release. 
And the first one I'm going to talk about is one that I really like. It's called Hard Eight. Eight spelled out in letters from 1996. And it's a PTA, uh, Parent Teachers Association. <laughs> no, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. It's his uh, directorial debut of a feature film. Uh, we've got 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, if there's any any novices out there who aren't familiar with the works of Paul Thomas Anderson, he's got things like Boogie Nights, The Master, There Will Be Blood, some others. Basically, we've it's almost a film noir. It's a gambling movie. Uh, we've got a cast that includes Philip Baker Hall as Sidney, and he's the veteran uh, gambler who's level-headed. Um, you would know him from several Paul Thomas Anderson movies like Boogie Nights and Magnolia. He's done a ton of like character work, small parts in a million films. Uh, then we've got John C. Riley as John Finnegan, who is a gambler as well, but kind of a dunce. Okay. He's he's not smart and he's not level-headed. Then we've got Gwyneth Paltrow as Clementine. And she is a cocktail waitress at a casino who also moonlights as a prostitute. And then we've got Samuel L. motherfucking Jackson as Jimmy, who is claims to work in security, but he's just kind of an all-around bad guy. And what year was this released? 1996. So Samuel L. Jackson would have been 60. Yeah, he was like 72, <laughs> I think. Dude does not age. I, this is a straight-up plot summary but i put a hashtag where i'm supposed to stop so <laughs> that i don't spoil anything okay um I, i'm gonna go ahead and call for spoilers no no spoilers this. yes i'm calling for spoilers in this episode okay because you're if, gonna have some if we're gonna talk about blackmail movies then a lot of times that blackmail is 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 kept away from the audience until uh -huh. the very end for dramatic effect yeah um i think i mean if you want to avoid them fine i know in some of mine i'm gonna to have to talk about Black okay Hill. i mean i can initially i was just gonna reveal everything then i was like oh come on what if they've never seen it well just go with the flow give a spoiler warning if you think it, all right all right it merits it what i'll do is i'll go to the point where i was gonna stop and then do spoiler warning all right so we've got sydney brown a well-dressed senior gambler uh, he finds John Finnegan, who's homeless, he's forlornly, uh, sitting outside of a diner in Sparks, Nevada. He offers him a cigarette and buys him a cup of coffee. John tells Sydney that he lost the money in Vegas and he needs, or he lost money in Vegas and needs $6,000 for his mother's funeral. They travel to Vegas where Sydney helps John win the money. Two years later, John has become Sydney's protege. He's taken him under his wing. Sydney is calm and reserved and displays a fatherly care for John, who is unsophisticated. John has a new friend named Jimmy, played by Samuel L. Jackson, uh, who does security work, in quotation marks. John is attracted to Clementine, a cocktail waitress at the casino, who uh, they find out also moonlights as a prostitute. Um, although Clementine thinks that Sydney wants to hire her for sex. Okay. Sydney actually wants to encourage a connection between Clementine and John. Okay. Um, so he tells John to take Clementine out uh, around the town, gives him some spending money, says, go show her the town. 
After receiving a frantic phone call, Sydney finds John and Clementine holding an unconscious tourist hostage in a nearby motel because he did not pay Clementine for sex. Sydney learns that John and Clementine have called the hostage's wife, threatening to kill him if they do not get their money. Now, you're thinking, that's not blackmail. You are correct. There will be blackmail later. This is definitely ransom, though. After finding Jimmy's gun, Sydney convinces John and Clementine to flee the motel, advising them to leave town for a honeymoon as they have recently been impulsively married. While leaving, Sydney removes the evidence from the motel room. Sydney meets with Jimmy, who tells him that the couple did not call the police. However, Jimmy explains that he has heard stories of Sydney killing John's father in Atlantic City. So Jimmy knows that Sydney killed John's father in Atlantic City. Okay. Jimmy pulls a gun on Sydney and threatens to kill John, excuse me, and threatens to tell John unless Sydney gives him $10,000. Spoiler alert from here on forward in this in this description. Sydney says that he doesn't have it, but he can give him $6,000 cash. They go to Jimmy's suite and down to the casino floor where Sydney gets the money from the cashier and gives it to Jimmy. John calls Sydney from the roadside phone to update him on their honeymoon trip. During the call, Sydney tells John that he loves him like a son. Sydney then sneaks back into Jimmy's house, kills him, and retrieves the money. The next day, Sydney returns to the diner where he met John and covers his blood-stained shirt cuff with a jacket sleeve. And that's Heart Eight. Very cool. It's a super fucking cool <clears throat> movie, and I wish more people had seen it. Yeah, I think this is a, a really good example of blackmail and extortion and ransom um, all kind of wrapped up into a nice gambling noir. What do you think? It sounds cool. It's got all the earmarks. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of reads like a Tarantino film. It sounded like yeah. it. There was a lot of uh, a lot of those elements in it. Uh, definitely got the noirish kind mm -hmm. of uh, effect going on there too. Um, all right, I'm going to talk about one that is was new to me this week in terms of viewing it, but it's one I have heard about my whole life, mm -hmm. and it was on several lists of blackmail movies that you know in the top ten kind of thing, and that is. The Postman Always Rings Twice. This was originally released in 1946, uh, directed by Tay Garnett, starring Lana Turner and John Garfield. In 46, okay. Uh -huh. And then it was later remade in 1981, uh, directed by Bob Raffleson, starring Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lange. Yes. That's now that's the one that I grew up hearing about. It's I'm, the one most people know of. Yeah, and it's... it's uh, I guess I should back up and say I watched both of those films this week. The first one, they missed the mark with the the seediness mm -hmm. of it all. Um, the dialogue suffers from some real heavy cheese, like okay. like eye rollingly bad. Well, dialogue. it was the '40s, though. I don't know. There are some great movies from the '40s, but people talked funny. You see, <laughs> not everyone, but yes. So let me break down the plot for you, and then I'll get into some of the okay. uh, issues I have with the films, plural. Um, in both versions of the film, uh, a sensuous wife of a roadside diner proprietor and a rootless, not ruthless, rootless, rootless drifter. Is that like wayward? He just wanders. Okay. They begin a sordid and steamy affair and conspire to murder her Greek husband. Okay. 
So you've got this uh, roadside diner. Mm-hmm. The Greek guy runs it. Uh, the the drifter shows up and gets a job as the mechanic. Because they've the got the mechanic of the diner. Well, there's a diner and like a, literally like California middle of the nowhere kind uh-huh. of thing where so they it's need connected. That. It's like an all all in yes. one kind of attraction where if you have some uh, oil change type type shit you need to get done while you have your burger and coke you know or you have your burger and coke while you get your roadside maintenance taken care of what else are you gonna do look at the scenery watch and it'll charge you more (laughs) so the main character's name is frank chambers uh he he gets as i said he gets the job uh from nick the uh the greek owner okay and he discovers very quickly that he has a beautiful wife named Mm -hmm. cora who is much younger than the right. uh, the restaurant owner, and they kind of fall for one another. And initially, you're led to believe that Nick is the really dirty one because he's the drifter. He's originally given a ride to this place hitchhiking, and it turns out it was the um, the uh, district attorney. Oh, who figures heavily into the plot. And as the two fall for one another, Cora kind of comes forward as being almost as unscrupulous as he is. Okay. And they hatch this plot to get rid of Nick. Mm-hmm. So the two of them can be going to knock him off. See? Yeah, exactly. So they execute the murder plot, which involves a car accident in which Nick dies, but the two of them are also injured in the process. Okay. You know, California Hills. Imagine mm-hmm. car rolling off and everyone tumbles down. But uh, through some oversights on their part, it becomes pretty obvious that they tried to stage this whole thing and they get uh, taken, to, to get taken to court. Okay. Under arrest, under suspicion for murder. The attorney, the defense attorney, has um, some guy come in, presumably from the court, to take a confession from Nick. He's told told Nick, you know, if you confess, we can get you we can get you off and Cora will will take the rap. And turns out the guy that took the confession was spoilers was not with the court. It he was, was a hired guy. He was a hired guy. Yeah. So they could have this to hold over them that they have a confession yeah. on file. And through some legal some acrobatics, okay. Nick gets off because he was injured so badly and Cora pleased down to manslaughter on probation. They're essentially free and clear. Yeah. Except the guy that took the confession shows up later on in the film blackmailing them saying, I've got this. Mm-hmm. If I turn it in, you're but both double jeopardy only for her. Oh. Nick will go. And so they have to figure out how to get through this. Where the two films diverge is in the old version, Nick goes to prison, but he wants to go to prison under the murder of Nick, not the death of Cora. Cora dies, I okay. guess I should say. In the newer version, it doesn't even end that way. It, just, it ends well before that. The two of them just kind of seem like they're going to be fine. In both cases, I was really disappointed. Yeah. I don't understand Considering, what like, the high regard that it's held in. Yeah, the only thing I can... And as you mentioned off mic, you know, the thing I can figure that the uh, the 81 version, the reason it was so popular, because it was steamy. Yeah. You had Jack Nicholson in his prime, mm-hmm. and Jessica Lange, who's as cute as a button in this movie. Love her. And there are some erotic scenes with the two of them that are pretty hot. I mean, yeah. you take your girl to go see this movie, you're going to both get hot and bothered. And, yeah. You know, hey, hey. The first version of the film really misses the mark because of the cheesy dialogue. When the two of them are falling for one another, 
the music is very sweeping and very romantic, <laughs> but it's like, you guys are doing wrong. You, right. This is frowned upon. It should be more sinister sounding. That's what the newer version gets correct, though. There is a sinister, a sinister quality about what they're doing. However, they miss the mark. Both films, I think, miss the mark about the blackmail. The blackmail um, could have been played to a greater effect. They could have been drawn out more and made them squirm more under the pressure of being exposed. Um, in the newer version, the attorneys don't play as enough of a part in the plot Whereas in the first version, it's obvious the attorneys are the puppeteers of this whole thing. Uh, by the way, the defense attorney is played by Hume Cronin. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, really, really weaselly in that role. I thought he was probably the best uh, in, the, in the original. But uh, disappointment for me. So when you take your girl to see this movie, you tell her, I've got a Hume Cronin. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, disappointed. Disappointed because I had heard so many good things about this movie. Both versions felt it could have been better. Okay. So there we go. All right. You're up. All right. My next one, I'll go ahead and tell you, it's called Cruel Intentions. Oh, yeah. From the year 1999, directed by Roger Cumble, who's never done anything else at all. He Well, he did one of the sequels to this, and then he's done some other, like, made-for-TV shit. Um, but before I, like I, a, I like a good... Uh... <laughs> Go ahead, Cumble. I like a it's good, spelled with a K. I like a good Roger Cumble on top of my my little fruit pies. You know, uh-huh. that really brings coffee out cake. The, yeah, 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 a little Roger Cumble. Um, before we get into this, I was mentioning earlier that an episode idea. It's something that we've talked about before. Is that the year nineteen ninety nine was oh. one of the greatest years in cinema? Best year, and we should do an episode about that. Okay, just movies from nineteen ninety nine. For example. Here's a few movies that came out in 1999. Eyes Wide Shut. Yes. American Beauty. Yep. The Sixth Sense. Yep. The Green Mile. Mm -hmm. Magnolia. Mm -hmm. The Matrix. Stir of Echoes. Fight Club. Office Space. The Blair Witch Project. The Iron Giant. Girl Interrupted. Boondock Saints. South Park. Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Election. Galaxy Quest. Being John Malkovich. Wow. We're going to mention election later on in the episode. Nice. All right. So this film is a modern retelling, uh, Cruel Intentions, that is, is a modern retelling of, and I'm probably going to butcher the French pronunciation, Pierre Chauderlos de Lassio's 1782 novel, Les Lésions Dangerouses. This one is set in New York City among rich high schoolers. I think that's actually incorrect. I think that they're college age. Uh, So there's been numerous adaptations of that novel, two of which went to film here in the United States. Um, Dangerous Liaisons from 1988, uh, directed by Stephen Frears, starring Glenn Close, John Malkovich, a very young Michelle Pfeiffer, and, oh, I'm sorry, Michelle Pfeiffer and a very young Uma Uma Thurman. Thurman. Then we've got, the next year, in 1989, Valmont, mm-hmm. directed by Milos Forman, starring Annette Benning, Colin Firth, and Meg Tilly. Yep. Both of those are superior films to uh, Cruel Intentions, but it's worth pointing out. So two vicious step-siblings of an elite Manhattan prep school make a wager to deflower the new, the new headmaster's daughter before the start of the term. Annette, played by Reese Witherspoon, unwittingly becomes the pawn of Sebastian, 
played by Ryan Philippe. Now, I thought about this. They were married for years. Yeah. I wondered if this is where they met. They actually met a year before this at her 21st birthday party. Okay. And Catherine's, Sarah Michelle Gellar, a deliciously diabolical wager of sexual conquest when she writes an article in Seventeen magazine about how she intends to stay pure until she marries her boyfriend. Um, and that's Annette who wrote this article. Uh, however, Sebastian gets more than he bargained for as he attempts to woo Annette into his bed. So where does the blackmail come in is what you're wondering, I'm sure. There's a lot of blackmail in this movie, not just financial. There's emotional blackmail. There's sexual blackmail. There is actual blackmail. <laughs> um, so I've got a little more here. So we've got, uh, it starts out in the psychiatrist's office and Ryan Philippe's character is being treated by Susie Kurtz. Oh yeah. Uh, who also was in Dangerous Liaisons as a different character. Um, she played Madame de Volanger in the 1988 film version. Um, I should actually just list the cast because the cast is crazy. We've got Sarah Michelle Gellar as Catherine Mertoul, uh, based on Marquis de Marquise de Mertoul, Ryan Philippe as Sebastian Valmont, uh, Reese Witherspoon as Annette Hargrove, Selma Blair as Cecile Caldwell. She's the unsuspecting, naive version. Louise Fletcher as Helen Rosemont, who's kind of like a... Um, a, a rich benefactress. Okay. Um, Joshua Jackson. Oh yeah. Pacey is in this <laughs> as Blaine Tuttle. And he's a, um, openly gay acquaintance of theirs. Susie Kurtz, as I mentioned, Tara Reed as oh, Marcy wow. Greenbaum only in one scene of the movie. She is Susie Kurtz's daughter. Okay. And while while she's in this opening scene, while Susie Kurtz is treating Sebastian, basically counseling him, she gets a frantic phone call from her daughter who's heartbroken and ashamed because the, the man that she thought she loved who seduced her posted naked pictures of, of her on the internet and called her a slut. And it turns out it was Sebastian. Okay. Then we cut to an upscale New York City mansion where Sebastian... Um, enters the room and his half-sister Catherine is there talking to Mrs. Caldwell and her daughter Cecile who will be starting as a freshman at, is it Dartmouth? An upscale school. Catherine promises Miss Caldwell that she'll look out for her even though she goes on to make this dangerous liaison. <laughs> when Catherine's stepmother, Seba stepbrother Sebastian Valmont enters the room, I should specify it's stepbrother, not half-brother. Enters the room. Miss Caldwell reacts to him coldly and leaves with Cecile. So then they um, they plot their, their bet. Catherine tells Sebastian that she intends to use Cecile to take revenge on her ex-boyfriend, Court Reynolds, who dumped her for Cecile. Catherine enlists Sebastian, a notorious womanizer, to seduce Cecile, thereby ruining her in Court's eyes. Sebastian refuses because he's planning to seduce Annette, who is the new headmaster's daughter. She has written an essay which was published in Seventeen Magazine, blah, blah, blah. After some negotiation, they agree to on a wager. If Sebastian falls 
fails to seduce Annette, Catherine gets his vintage Jaguar. And if he succeeds, she'll have sex with him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sebastian's first attempt to seduce Annette fails, as she is apparently already aware of his reputation. Sebastian initially suspects Greg, Annette's friend from Kansas, who is a popular football player and closeted homosexual. Sebastian convinces Greg to put, on, put in a good word for him to Annette, blackmailing him with a photo of him and Sebastian's openly gay friend in bed. There's our blackmail, our financial blackmail. Okay. Um, and the openly gay friend is Pacey. All right. So, meanwhile, a, a whole lot of, of this kind of thing goes on. and But, of course... Ryan, Ryan Reynolds, uh, <laughs> um, Ryan Philippe actually falls for Reese Witherspoon and is torn between his uh, pride and reputation as a womanizer and his true feelings, which is very difficult for him to accept. And so he does actually seal the deal. Then he, then he goes back to get his reward from his stepsister and she's like i don't fuck losers and then <laughs> so then he goes back to annette and tells tells her we can't do this anymore it's not working out i was just using you blah 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 and she's heartbroken because she's fallen in love with him as well but then he goes and he has second feelings or second thoughts and he confesses the whole thing by giving her his diary, which outlines all of the details of not only the bet, but the um, all of the other mischief that he and his stepsister have been up to and her poor character as well. She tells people that when times get hard, she leans on the Lord and she has a cross necklace that's filled with cocaine. <laughs> um, so he actually does win her back but it's too late not because she won't have him but because he gets in a fight with the music teacher of cecile who's actually played by the guy from save the last dance uh his he's got a three name as well um sean patrick thomas as ronald clifford okay music teacher real good actor and, and and also apparently like a philanthropist um does a lot for the kids. He gets in a fight with the music teacher because his stepsister told the music teacher that he fucked Cecile, who the music teacher is in love with. So they get in a fight on the street and a car is coming and it's about to hit Annette, Reese Witherspoon, <laughs> and Sebastian pushes her out of the way, getting hit by the car himself, and he dies. But she has his journal. So now she's the headmaster's daughter going into the next year at school and she publishes it as a zine and re <laughs> reveals all of the dirty secrets and drives away in the Jaguar. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, it's very 1999. Yeah. Um, notice I didn't mention it in the best films of 1999. <laughs> but one thing that's really awesome is the soundtrack. Okay. So here are some some standouts, some highlights. Um, Praise You by Fat Boy Slim. Nice. Coffee and TV by Blur. Very nice. Colorblind by Counting Crows. Okay. 
Coming Up From Behind by Marcy Playground. Oh, yeah. You Could Make a Killing by Amy Mann. Okay. And Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. <laughs> Could not be any more 1999. So that is um, my kind of half-assed description of... Half-assed? Dude, that was a journey. Of Cruel Intentions. I, um, I've seen it three times now. I watched it when it came out. I watched it with Michelle in a marathon where we watched Cruel Intentions, Valmont, and Dangerous Liaisons. Wow. And then I rewatched it again for this podcast. Jesus. Well, good on you, man. It was dangerous. <laughs> Obviously. Well, that's a good spot for us to uh, take a break. I think so. Intermission. But not before we say, let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby and get ourselves some black licorice. Oh, speaking of Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> well, that was licorice pizza. Don't go there. <laughs> so controversial. Don't go there. Yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. We promise to satisfy your hunger, your thirst, your sweet tooth. So visit our refreshment center now. Let's go. And we're back. Uh, I decided to go pee in the yard. I did as well. Travis went to an opposite corner. Mm-hmm. Like we do. Appropriate distance. I've just got a few more movies that came out in 1999. <laughs> no, no. Let's save it for the episode. When we come back from intermission, what do we like to do? A beer check-in. All right. I got another one from Edmunds Oast. Uh, this one's called Cereal After Dark. This is a, a stout brewed with toasted coconut, vanilla bean, cacao nibs. Cacao. So I'm worried that with my, with my slight congestion, the listeners might have thought I said beer chicken. This is not a beer chicken, uh, but that is a really good cooking technique. It is a great cooking technique. Um, that's 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 a fine beer. I don't I don't have a problem with this. No, this is good. All right, so I'm going to jump in and uh, pick up where we left off with uh, one of my films. This is one of my favorites. Uh, it's a Japanese noir film. Okay. It's called Intimidation. It came out in 1960, and I apologize for my pronunciation of these yeah. Japanese names. I am unapologetic. Directed by Koryoshi Kurahara. Starring... I think that Japanese is easier easier to pronounce than French. Yeah, I think so, too. It's also some of the same like vowel sounds as Spanish. It stars Ko Nishimura and Nobu Kanaioi. Kana that one's hard. Nobu Kanaioi. And Marie Shiraki. All right. I think you did it, dude. So this is a tightly woven story. This thing is an hour and five minutes tops. Um, it's, a, it's a story of two men, uh, Marakichi Nakake and Kiyosuke Takeda. Are those the actors? Those are the characters. Okay. Not that it matters. I'm, I'm glad that they gave us the full names of the characters. <laughs> uh, their lives and their careers are going in two completely different directions. Mm -hmm. Both work in a bank. One is uh, climbing that corporate ladder. The other one is just kind of floundering. Nakiki is approached by a stranger who has dirt on him regarding illegal loans that he's been making from the bank. And basically says... I need you to steal 3 million yen from your bank. Otherwise, I'm going to expose you for the crimes that you've committed. Mm -hmm. So what follows... How could this go wrong? So what follows is a very tightly woven tale of manipulation and blackmail. He goes to the bank. 
and his friend just happens to have gotten pulled for night duty. Apparently they mm-hmm. have night duty and not security guards for the bank. So his friend is there at the bank um, monitoring security. He shows up in a fedora hat with a nice. with a, with, a, with a you know a, a scarf pulled up over his nose. Remind me the year? Uh, 1960. 60. Okay, so it's kind of throwback. It, yeah, very much so. The Japanese uh, noir they in the 60s they were all about re- the 40s. They were repeating our stuff from the 40s okay. exactly. And so he gets in there and he has everyone at gunpoint. There's only about two other people in the whole facility. And he gets his friend to let him into the vault. And he takes exactly 3 million yen. And his friend's like, don't you want to take more? And he says, yeah, he yells at him and uh, tells him to back off. He's obviously flustered by this whole process. It's not in him to do this, even though he's been doing illegal shit. And he ends up like wiping his brow and his head comes back and it becomes very obvious who he is. And he realizes that the jig is up. His friend's going to make him. And so he pulls down his mask and he says, you failed my test. I was testing the security of the bank and you guys screwed up. And the next day they have a big meeting at the bank and he implores the president, you know, don't fire my friend. Anybody would have fallen for the same pro, you know, the same situation. And he let, he proceeds to lecture everybody at the bank about how this was poor security and everyone needs to learn from this lesson. Okay. So he's covering up his own fuck up which he's already doing illegal shit and he's trying to flip the tables. And so he's just painting himself as just a despicable character. Uh, I guess I should back up and say also despicable me. (laughs) I should back up and say that he also at one point dated the wife of his best friend, but, but he dumped her. So he could marry the president. So there's some bad blood there. So he could marry the president's daughter. Okay. So this guy's a shit, right? Yeah. So... Sounds like a real Valmont. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? So he ends up uh, getting confronted by this this uh, hired gun who is blackmailing him. He says, you didn't get the money. You didn't get the money. And the long and the short of it is, and this is the spoiler, it was his uh, friend who was doing the blackmailing. He okay. was behind the whole situation. The guy gets on a train to go um, to another branch of the bank to work, and his friend follows him, and he's like, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And the only drawback to this film is it ends with him getting arrested, The the not the blackmailer, but the one that was actually doing the dirty shit. Mm-hmm. But it's a tightly woven, you know, I love economy. I love a, a film that can be told very quickly and succinctly. This is one of those films. It's really cool. Do you think that the phrase the jig is up comes from the dance or the jigsaw? I don't know. So it would make sense either way. Like the jig is up, meaning your dance is over or the jig is up. We're no longer trying to solve the puzzle. Hmm. I don't know. I think I should. should, I should also mention that the music teacher in, uh, (laughs) in, Cruel Intentions is a black male. Oh, my God. The guy from Save the Last Dance. Oh, God. You really, really like that movie. All right. This is your third film. Tell us what you have. I've got Glass Onion. Oh, the Glass Onion. A Knives Out Mystery. Now, I personally, uh, I think they didn't need the subtitle. They could have just called it Glass Onion. They were trying to make sure people knew it was a sequel to 
to yeah, Knives Out. They were playing on the popularity <laughs> of Knives Out. I think that they were counting on that. I think that, that the real artistic choice would have just to give it a title and expect people to know. Yeah, Glass Onion would have been would have been enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it's directed by Ryan Johnson, who also directed Brick, speaking of noir, from 2005. Looper from 2012. He did Star Wars The Last Jedi, Don't At Us, uh, and then <laughs> Knives Out in 2019. This movie has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Tech billionaire Miles Braun invites his friends for a getaway on his private Greek island. When someone turns up dead, Detective Benoit Blanc is put on the case. Now, this is Daniel Craig, post-James Bond, doing his best gay southern Hercule Poirot. Yeah. So these movies have a definite uh, Agatha Christie feel. Yep. And also the movie Clue, which you mentioned earlier. Right. Uh, so I'll mention the cast. We've got Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, a private investigator. We've got Edward Norton as Miles Braun, a billionaire and owner of a large tech company. Janelle Monet, my girl, as uh, I can't, I can't actually say who she plays right now. I'll get to it in the spoiler. <laughs> um, Catherine Hahn. <coughs> As Claire DeBella, the governor of Connecticut, now running for the United States Senate. Leslie Odom Jr. as Lionel Toussaint, the head scientist for Miles Company. Kate Hudson as Birdie J, a hedonistic, politically incorrect former supermodel turned fashion designer in Manhattan. And Dave Batista as Duke Cody, a video game streamer and men's rights activist on Twitch and YouTube. <laughs> so this is your cast of characters that are now put into a bottle or a glass onion, both figuratively and literally because the compound that they go to is architecturally similar to an onion shape and it's glass, glass onion. Yes. Um, wait, does that mean something else? Glass onion? Does that mean, is that like a phrase? A glass onion? I don't know. Hmm. We need to look that up. All right. So this, this, uh, this plot summary is shorter. In May 2020, amid the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic, Miles Braun, co-founder of the tech company Alpha, concocts a thrilling murder mystery game for his exclusive friend group, The Disruptors. Set against the opulent backdrop of his private island mansion in Greece, Miles invites the eclectic mix, including Alpha's head scientist Lionel Toussaint, Connecticut Governor Claire DeBella, model-turned-fashion designer Bertie J, men's rights streamer Duke Cody, and ousted co-finder Cassandra Andy Brand, who is played by Janelle Monet. Um, the group receives cryptic wooden puzzle boxes, wooden puzzles, jigsaws, huh? Uh, <laughs> as invitations, unraveling a sophisticated enigma that only Andy bypasses with a brute force approach. She just smashes it. Um, upon arrival on the secluded island, additional players, Birdie's assistant Peg and Duke's girlfriend Whiskey, join the intrigue. 
The plot thickens when the unexpected appearance of renowned detective Benoit Blanc, who claims Miles invited him. Miles denies this, sparking tension, yet allows Blanc to stay. As the evening unfolds, Blanc swiftly solves the murder mystery, the, the murder mystery game, privately warning Miles of his friend's motives to harm him. Duke's sudden death, a possible poisoning, intensifies suspicions, leading to the summoning of the police. Amidst the chaos and a power outage, Blanc discovers Andy murdered, unveiling a convoluted web of corporate deceit. A flashback discloses Andy's demise a week earlier and her opposition to Alpha's hazardous hydrogen fuel clear with a K. As Blanc investigates, it is revealed that Miles orchestrated Andy's demise and Duke's subsequent blackmail attempt. There's your blackmail. The story climax... Oh, spoilers alert. Spoilers! Spoiler alert. The story climaxes with a fiery revelation. Helen, Andy's twin, assumes her sister's identity to expose Miles' misdeeds. Despite Miles destroying evidence, the group, witnessing the destructive power of Clear, with a K, decides to testify against him as the police boats approach. The narrative is riveting is a riveting blend of mystery, betrayal, and revenge, with a cast of characters navigating a web of deceit while unveiling the dangerous truths behind Miles' empire. I liked this when it came out. I thought it was fun. I enjoyed it too, but I really want to go back and look at my reviews of this and original <laughs> Knives Out, see which one I rated higher, and see like comparatively how the reviews are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 at the time, I remember thinking about how clearly this was like Elon Musk. Oh, yeah. yeah just Big time. So funny time. that you know they skewered him. Um, all right. My film. This is our last one of the evening. This is one that I did not know anything about. I happened to do a search on Criterion Channel for blackmail. And this is one of the ones that came up. It's called Victim. And it's from 19... 19- you did a, a search on the Criterion channel for blackmail yeah. and Will Smith came up? No. Victim is the name of the film from 1961. It's directed by Basil Dearden. And it stars Sir Dick Bogard, uh, Sylvia Sims, and Dennis Price. Dick Bogard? Dick Bogard. The film is essentially a plea for reform of England's anti-sodomy statutes. Okay, gotcha. Because back in the day, it was illegal to be gay. Yeah. Uh, They they had to bogard that dick. Careful. (laughs) (laughs) Melville Farr, played by Dick Bogard, he's a married lawyer who is on the rise. No No pun. I'm not doing anything. (laughs) I swear, officer. (laughs) He is trying to locate a blackmailer who has photos of Far and a crying young gay man in his car. Okay. Clearly a breakup is happening. And that means that they must have sodomized each other. Of course. The young man is being blackmailed. It's revealed in the film, through the course of the film, the young man is being blackmailed and later he commits suicide. Uh-oh. Yes. Far tracks down other gay men being extorted for money by the same blackmail scheme. Uh-huh. Uh, the police detective inspector, um, Inspector Harris, he's played by John Barry. He considers the anti-sodomy law nothing more than a license to blackmailers. Wow. Uh, I've never even thought about that. That's well, very some the, interesting. Some of the lines uh, about this. 
uh, it, that he says in the film, this is the inspector who's, you know, to his credit is very level headed about this. He's like, this is a stupid law and I don't, it's none of my business. 90% of all blackmail cases have a homosexual origin is what he says in the film. He said, okay. uh, they once called this law um, against homosexuals, the blackmailers charter. Wow. Yeah. And he also goes on to say that fear is the oxygen of blackmail, which I was like, when you think of it like a flame, I mean, that's kind of, yeah. that's kind of true. Far contacts them about this. He, he finally goes to the police and says, you know, here's what I've been doing. I've been trying to track this whole thing down. I kind of have it all figured out. Um, the movie is far ahead of its time. Um, it ends with far and his loving wife coming to terms with his homosexual tendencies. Okay. Uh, she's, Cool, She's cool, cool with, with it. it. Not really cool with it, but they, they talk it through. You know, uh-huh. it's something that was discussed. And it's like, well, sometimes you got to go get your bugger on. Yes. So he makes the decision. I'm going to face the blackmailers and go to trial. He's mm-hmm. going to take the scene to trial. And at, at the sacrifice. And his wife is going to testify on his behalf. Uh, not really, but just preparing. He prepares her for what's going to happen because mm-hmm. essentially his career is going to get shot. But he knows that for the greater good that he needs to take this one on the chin and mm-hmm. go take to, one for the team. Take one for the team because these blackmailers are are, are taking down all of these closeted so he gay needs men. To, he needs to set a precedent. Yes, exactly. What was cool about this movie, the detective, he was very accepting of the gay lifestyle, mm-hmm. and which was kind of neat. Of course, his subordinate was very anti-gay. He comes off as being... Good cop, bad cop. He comes off as being very, very right-wing. Bigoted. Yeah. And uh, the blackmailer, uh, his identity's kind of ambiguous. It's like, who this guy, whatever reason he had for doing all this, his accomplice is a lady who works in a, a bookshop where the owner is a gay man and she is so pious and puritanical about gotcha. just looking down her nose at him. Um, but yeah, the, the, the film is cool. I, I wish that more people knew about it. Victim 1961. I really, really liked the movie. And it's on criterion. Yeah. It's on criterion okay. channel. So I, I was excited to come across it. It's one of those nice little discoveries. Yeah. And it's a different aspect of blackmail that I had, than I had thought of. Yeah. Um, and it just goes to show you that there's, no uh no stone left unturned when it comes to this evil doing yes making people squirm Mm -hmm. and they made them squirm so yeah i like this one the best out of the three that i talked about just because the the actual tool of blackmail dominated the film it was the plot can i ask you a question yes is there a postman in the postman always rings twice no but there's a dumbass quote in the original uh-huh. where they said you know sometimes the postman he rings the door and if you're out back you don't know about it you don't hear him but if he rings that second time you hear it i'm like what the fuck does that even mean it's the dumbest line in the movie it seems like it should be a metaphor for something it's terrible it is it is but it's so lost on everything and then in the new version i don't even remember remember them talking about they don't it. even say it yeah they're just like, yeah, you remember that movie? This one's sexy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, blackmail movies. Blackmail um, movies. Blackmail Sorry movies. I, I beat that uh, male African-American horse to death. Uh, uh, you know, if you we had... Were, we were both thinking it. If you hadn't, I would have been really disappointed <laughs> yes. because I knew it was that low-hanging fruit that you just cannot resist. I can't resist it. <laughs> um, all right, so we're a little, uh, a little early on being done. Let's talk about some movies that we've seen. Movie check-ins. So it's December 
as of this recording, December yes. 1st. Yes. And I think that if I was a betting man, I would say I'm not going to get to 365 this year. I wasn't even trying, but... Uh, I'm at 156. <laughs> 156 movies. It, it's very... Which is, which is still a shit ton of movies for one person to watch in is. one year. It's very liberating not to be harangued uh -huh. by the, yep. the, the We're marathon. no longer yoked. Um, well, I'm yoked because I'm on steroids, but we're no longer under the yoke of the movie marathon and meeting 365. The first year I did it, I did 465. How is that humanly possible? I got close to that a couple of times. Cannot yeah. even it's, imagine it's how we did that. We are marathon men. Yes. All right. So... Uh, the first one we got to talk about is the one we both watched very recently. Yes. The Holdovers. Oh, my God. It's Alexander Payne, yes. who you would know as the director of Sideways. Uh, Election. Election. See, I some, told you. Some <laughs> other great movies. Oh, Downsizing. The Downsizing, The movie that yes. I don't understand why people hated on it so much. Yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah. Um, and he's reteaming, teaming back up. With Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti. Who's playing a curmudgeonly uh, private school professor. Yes. Who gets kind of finagled into staying over for holding over. Christmas break. Christmas break with the kids who aren't going home or aren't right. going anywhere. And in the process, he befriends one of the... Uh, one of the more intellectual of the kids, the kid who gets stranded there for real. Yeah. Cause he was supposed to go home and his mom, his mom just doesn't care. She doesn't care. She ran, she ran off with Tate Donovan. And at first I didn't even recognize him. I know. I kept looking when at he, him when going. he got out of the car. I was like, who the fuck is that? He looks yep. familiar. And then in the, in the interview scene, I was like, that's fucking Tate, Tate Donovan. Remember when he was on friends? Yep. Um, sorry, I'm getting loud. So this movie is good. It's set in 1970, 70. 71. 70, and it grows into 71, yeah. And it's shot in a style that is reminiscent of that. As I said in my review on Letterboxd, this movie is of its time. Yes. You could have told me that this was shot in 1970, and had I not known the actors involved, I would have said, yeah. So I don't want to give, considering the recency of this movie, I don't want to give too much away. You should watch it. Um the soundtrack is really good. Soundtrack's great. The sound, soundtrack is on point. The opening credits, you said, the, oh. reminded you of The Graduate. Absolutely. And then I said, there's just a... <laughs> wait, there's a Dustin Hoffman reference later. And somewhere, diegetically, in the movie, they're watching Little Big Man. Yep. Uh, a movie that we covered on the show. Which is also kind of a reflection of the plot, the sun coming mm. back home. Um just really great movie. The thing that blew me away the most, Tully, the boy, mm -hmm. it's his only movie credit. Oh, wow. Go look him up on IMDb. It's the only he, thing on his page. He's about to blow up. He was Because incredible. of this podcast episode. Yes, we're putting you up there, Tully. <laughs> we're on your team. Team Tully, you got something different? I'm not. In, okay, well, then go I've got um, one that you suggested to me. Actually, you didn't really suggest it. You condescendingly said, <laughs> if you're not watching Onyx the Fortuitous, oh, God. what are you doing with your life? <laughs> and I did watch it, and I did enjoy it. I chuckled. It's cute. But you told me it was based on a YouTube guy from back in the day. I'm not familiar with his 
his name YouTube is stuff. Andrew Bowser is the okay. name of the director, writer, and star of the show. Mm-hmm. And he popped up on YouTube years ago as Weird Arby's Guy. Okay. And the sketch is taken from a news clip where some woman ran her car into an Arby's. And he cleverly spliced himself into the news interview. And he is that same guy. Okay. That, I don't know. I don't know. That that weird delivery. So the, the weird delivery was... At first, kind of hard to take. It's his bit because I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that, and he is kind of doing a William Shatner. He's very. Uh, Why yeah, does yeah. he talk in this way? Yeah, yeah. he's <laughs> kind of strange. He's he, he marches to his own beat. Yeah, he is a bizarre character. But notable, the movie was funny. Notable for the film, uh, Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton from Reanimator mm-hmm. are both in this film. Uh, Jeffrey Combs much more than Barbara, but uh, both are fantastic and always good to see them. And st- it was funny. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It. Uh, uh, it has its charm. Speaking of funny, I watched The Treasure of Foggy Mountain from the boys known as Please Don't Destroy. I don't know their names. Nobody else does either. But this is their feature film. They're the guys from SNL yep. who do the digital shorts, right? Yep. And it's got... Bad reviews. I really liked it. I watched it with my lovely wife, Michelle. We were both laughing. She said it was really good. I agree. Um, I think they're best suited to the short form videos that they do. Uh, I think it was a bit of a struggle to get this to an hour and a half. But they did it. Um, with the help of Conan. Conan O'Brien is <laughs> in it. Uh, I most And that hawk. I, I enjoyed the fact that it was shot in Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, I when I first started watching it, I was like, those landmarks look really familiar. And I had to look, I thought it was Asheville, but it turns out it was Charlotte. I I didn't realize that. That's cool. Yeah. But, um, I thought it was okay. Yeah. It it reminded me of cocaine bear. Yeah. A lot of the the same setting, but a lot of the same shenanigans. It's a, it's a formulaic comedy. And I think that's why people were bagging on it so badly, Mm -hmm. but I, I do think that they, they, they excel on the short form videos. Okay. But, Still, I didn't hate it. I I hope that a year from now, we know all three of their names. (laughs) Or at least one of them. I got one more. Go. And it's one that we both saw. I think we both liked it. It was um, highly anticipated. It's a sci-fi film called The Creator. The Creator. Yeah, The Creator. Um, Very prescient. Very poignant. Um, It's all about AI, but it's set in the mid-distant future okay this is what i'll say i almost cried and it's very ironic that a film about artificial intelligence could elicit that emotion from me i think you liked it a lot more than i did okay i felt that the template for the story was very much derivative of avatar yeah you said that and um i was not wooed by the young kid as much as you were well i thought that the whole time i thought she was a boy yeah and mostly because of the shaved head. The special effects were pretty The effects were awesome. slick. I, I will um, give massive credit to Also, shout out to our boy Sturgill Simpson. Sturgill. Showing back up, showing some range. <clears throat> I didn't realize it was him at first. It took me a while to place yeah. him. Yeah. I really liked it. I thought it was quality. I, I don't don't get me wrong. I thought it was good. It's just there were elements I was like, okay, I can see this coming because I've seen that movie before. But all in all, I enjoyed it. Right on. 
not a movie I've seen, but a trailer I've seen. Oh boy. Furiosa. Furiosa. I watched it on my lunch break today because you were like, holy shit, it's fire. And I was like, well, I can't watch it now. I'm working. (laughs) But I waited until lunch, my very brief lunch break, and I watched it and I was blown away. Yeah. Um, So glad that it's still in the hands of George Miller. Yep. Anya Taylor-Joy looks like she's nailing the character yep. not just in uh impression of Charlize Theron right. but actually portraying a younger version of the character yes we see a little bit of Immortan Joe yeah Immortan Joe uh, the young version of Immortan Joe and then we've got Chris Hemsworth in there being totally Australian yeah which, i mean which he is it, it's an Australian movie and it's so good to see him like being yeah. this outlandish yeah not thor over the top australian kind of character so mm-hmm. i'm excited very excited to i see think this. that we're we're definitely going to watch this at the julia when it comes i right? told you i might break out the immortan joe I don't think costume you're allowed to do that anymore why i can't go in the costume? no you can't go in costume to the movie theater oh, anymore man. because of the those shootings remember oh i guess and the so. guy dressed up as like batman but or we something. know a guy at the theater maybe i can That's ask him true although how bad do you want to bust out that costume? <laughs> it's up in the attic and it's probably covered in roaches. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I don't. Just get a tattoo. <laughs> All, All right. right, where are we at? Uh, we're done, man. This is uh, this is good. Uh, stuff coming up for the uh, show. Uh-huh. Uh, our top 23 of 23 is on the horizon. Yep. yep. And just past that is episode 300. 300! Uh, where we're going to talk about the homoerotic film 300. Absolutely. And a lot of other movies where the title is a number. Yeah. That's totally that, what we're going to do. That's the plan. And I think it's going to be a great formula. Yep. We might have some special guests. It's possible. So we got our fingers crossed on that one. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's the show. If you want to follow Cinema Chop Shop, you can do that on all of your social media. Uh, That's Cinema Chop Shop on just about everything except for YouTube, where it is Cinema Chop Shop Podcast at YouTube.com or on (laughs) YouTube.com. Yeah, it's it's YouTube's email address. Uh, And then also, we want to say, please remember to watch Chop retrofit and don't bite mill people it's bad form